my son Andrew is very good at getting people together and getting them talking. And this has been years ago. He decided that for Christmas, one of our family activities would be answering questions about ourselves. So he sent them out ahead of time so we could come prepared. And one of the questions was, what is the worst thing you've ever done? Now, I had been real honest with my kids, so I knew that no matter what I said, that they wouldn't be shocked. Their spouses might, but they wouldn't be shocked. But my mama heart was a little bit concerned about what they may say. But all of us were anxiously waiting what my husband would say. Because according to his mom, he's about as perfect of a child as you could ever get to raise. So we're sitting, and it comes to Bill's turn. And he says, well, there was this one time when I was a kid that I threw my coat over, the clothes, over my mom's clothesline in the basement. <laughs> what? <laughs> so finally somebody said, and what happened next? And he's like, nothing. And I thought, ooh, we are from two different planets. I have no idea <laughs> of what that even feels like. Sometimes I feel like that in the Bible when I'm reading this story. Like, there has to be more to this than what I see. And sometimes we have to dig a little bit. And I've done that, so some of what I'm going to share this morning is some of that, those extra details. We're going to be in John chapter 4, Acts chapter 9, and Philippians 3. And there are a couple other passages, but those are the main ones we'll be in. And I promise you won't be here until 2 o'clock. Um, Sometimes I don't stop and consider about how different life is today than it was for Jesus. Like when he went someplace, he was hoofing it. In John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it talks about he was getting ready to go to, um, he was leaving Judea and going to Galilee. You have Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Samaria is where the Samaritans live. Um, and many times, Jews would take one of two other routes, which would double their trip. Now, for us, that wouldn't be any big deal. Um, from Judea to Galilee, depending on where they started and where they went, is probably about as far as it is from here to Mount Sterling. It takes us, what, less than an hour to drive? For some of us, it takes even less than less than an hour to drive. <laughs> um, I pulled into the parking lot the other night to a meeting. One of the men said, came in hot, didn't you? <laughs> I'm like, it's the only way I know how to drive. I'm sorry. Um, but anyhow, there were Jews who didn't want to st put their feet in the soil of Samaria to even touch where the Samaritans lived. There was that much animosity between them, kind of like Kentucky and Louisville fans, or I don't even know what else. Browns and Steelers. Browns and Steelers. Um, we ain't going to fight because I love you. <laughs> but... Um, the most direct path was directly through Samaria. And um, the reason that there was this bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans were the Samaritans had Jewish origins, but Jews had been carried off, and the ones who were left intermarried with other nations, so they weren't pure bloods, and the Jews looked down on them. In verses 4 through 6 in Philippians, my word, John 4, we read, He, 
Jesus had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, as far as I can figure, that's about as far as it is from here to the Moorhead Rest Area. Now, can you imagine, you started walking yesterday, walked all day, got up today, and you started walking again. You're about halfway through your journey. I'm stopping at the rest area, too. So he sits down at this well. And it just amazes me that the Bible tells us that Jesus was weary. How many times do we thought, stop and think about the humanity of Jesus? Something to think about today. Things start to get real interesting about now because a woman from Samaria comes out to the well. Now, this is noon. You think, oh, that's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal because traditionally, women came in the morning when it was cool, not at noon when it was the heat of the day. And they came as a group because a group of women traveling was safer than a woman traveling by herself. And it gave them a chance to visit. How many of us like to sit with our friends and over a cup of coffee or something, whatever your non-alcoholic drink of choice is, and um, just visit, or never mind, I'm not even going to go there. Um, but anyhow, they're sitting, she's, Jesus is sitting at the well, and this woman comes, and he says, give me a drink. And she says, how is it that you a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink. Now, the thing is, is that Jews, and, like I said, Jews and Samaritans didn't talk. They were enemies. The second thing is that a Jewish man didn't talk to a woman in public, not even his wife. I cannot imagine what was going through her mind, that this Jewish man had asked her for water. In verses 15 or through in verses 10 through 15, there's a conversation about water and living water, and that would mean like a spring-fed well. That's much better than stagnant water. And he offers to give her this living water. In verses 15 to 18, she says, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to, you know, haul water home. I would want that. I wouldn't have to walk to the well. Wouldn't want to have to walk to the well. Let the bucket down. Pull the water up, put it in a jug, put the jugs on my shoulders or however they carried them. I saw the chosen and then had her with a stick across her back with a jug on either end. Regardless, it's not a pleasant task. Jesus says, call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. Is this why she was at the well by herself in the heat of the day? We don't know all the details. Was she a widow and grief kept her in bed? Or was she a five-time divorcee and a social outcast? Was it a combination of both? Did she feel unloved? Did she feel like she wasn't worthy to be with other people? We don't know any of those details, but we know enough. Because in verses 19 through 27, 
is part of a conversation that Jesus has with her that changes her life. How much does it change her life? In verses 28 through 29, the woman left her water jar. The whole reason that she had come to the well, she left her water jar, went into town and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Now, the Messiah is also known as the deliverer, the redeemer, and the restorer. He was promised by God, and both the Jews and the Samaritans were waiting for him. They'd been waiting for generations, and she was wondering, have I just spent time with the promised one? We're going to switch gears just a little bit, and we're going to talk about Saul for a minute. Saul was a Jew, and he didn't play at religion. He took his heritage. You were either a Jew or a Gentile by birth. He was a Jew. He was very proud of that. He took his religion seriously. Jews are the people that God chose to be a set-apart nation, to come apart from the way all the other nations worshipped, and to worship him alone, and to live for him. And he had a whole bunch of different things he had them do. This is what Paul had to say about himself in Acts 26, verses 4 to 5. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time. If they are willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. He kept all the rules. He was like my husband. Um, Acts 22.3, he continued, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of our ancestral law. I was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. What in the world is zealous? It's not a word we hear every day. Zealous means that you are sold out and ready to do whatever it takes in pursuit of a cause or an objective. We're going to look at a couple more places in Acts that tell us a little more about Paul, Saul. Backstory for the first one is, I'm going to tell you who Stephen was before I read to you about Stephen. Stephen was a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who was just serving and teaching people about Jesus, and the Jewish religious leaders were not happy. And he had an opportunity to stand before them and to talk to them, and he tried to share with them about how Jesus was, who the scriptures told them about. And when I say scriptures, at this point, they don't have the New Testament. They only have the Old Testament. Um, And so he tried to explain to them from the Old Testament who Jesus was, and they weren't happy. And in um, Acts 7, verses 58 through 8, 1, they, the religious leaders, dragged him, Stephen, out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's our Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out in a loud voice, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he fell asleep. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Acts 8.3 says Saul was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. And in Acts 9, verses 1 to 2, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women 
who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. The synagogues are where the Jewish people would meet to pray, to worship, to hear scripture read. Saul was the most Jewish Jew there could be. He studied under a very respected teacher. He loved God. He was zealous. He was prepared and eager to do whatever it took and to travel wherever he needed to go to defend the faith and to persecute those who threatened it or seemed to be teaching a doctrine that dishonored God. Saul believed that what Stephen taught about Jesus was corrupting the purity of the Jewish faith, and that's why he agreed with the stoning of Jesus. And when I say stoning, they didn't pick up pebbles and throw them. They picked up big rocks and threw them at him until he died. It's not pleasant. It wasn't quick, and it wasn't an easy death. And Saul stood there and said, yes, this is what we need to do. That's the kind of man Saul was. But like the Samaritan woman, we're going to find out something about Saul. In Acts chapter 9, a couple verses later, 3 through 6, as Saul was traveling or traveling and gotten close to Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Like the Samaritan woman, Saul had an unexpected encounter with Jesus. It left Saul blind. And when you read um, verses 7 through 19, it will explain to you how he got his sight back and who was involved in that. But what happened after Saul's encounter with Jesus and he got his sight back? In verses 20 through 22, it says, Immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who is causing havoc for those who called on his name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? But Saul grew stronger and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So the one who had gone into synagogues to seek out and persecute those who were proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah was now going into those same synagogues and preaching the message that he'd been trying to destroy. I'm telling y'all, an encounter with Jesus will change your life. What happened to the Samaritan woman after her encounter? Back to John chapter 4, verses 28 through 30. The woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Don't miss this. She left her water jar. The whole reason she went to the well was to get water for her household. But her need for Jesus was greater than her need to take that water home. The one who had been a social outcast was now a social influencer. People from her town listened, and they came out because they wanted to see the man she was talking about. That's incredible. Um, and you don't have to take my word for it. In John 4, verses 39 to 43, it says, Now many Samaritans from that time believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you've said. We have heard for ourselves, and we believe that this is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Stay two days, and then he went on his trip into Galilee. These may be my two most favorite stories in the New Testament about encounters with Jesus. But some of you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, they're interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. But that was over 2,000 years ago. Life is different today. They got to have direct conversations with Jesus. What about me? So I'm going to tell you about more recent history about a man and a woman. The man was a good man. He was kind. He was patient. He was gentle. Went to church. He had the privilege of seeing his grandma kneel and pray with her Bible open in front of her. I mean, he had a heritage of faith, much like Paul did. Now, the woman came from a family where family was very important. They did things together. But they didn't know Jesus. They weren't even priesters. Priesters are those people who go to church on Christmas and Easter, and that's the only time you see them. So <laughs> they didn't, you know, she didn't even have that. She did have a babysitter that convinced her mom to take her and her brothers to church for a couple of weeks. But that's the only religious training she had as a child. She knew her dad loved her. She knew her dad would protect her. She knew she was the princess and he was the king. And that's all she needed to know. She was happy. She was secure. Um, she got good grades. She never read about grades until she was like in her freshman year when they first went back to school. And this wasn't long after the Roe v. Wade decision um, approved abortions, made them legal. And her current events teacher, I don't know if that would be history or science, said, her teacher said, choose a controversial subject, write a report on it, and present it. Well, she chose abortion because she tended to be a little independent and strong-headed. And she was concerned because she didn't know what her teacher's stance on it would be. She got a report back, and it had a big fat A on the front of it. And she's like, yes! So it's the only time in her whole life she ever waited for her dad to get home from work and tell him what happened at school. And she said, Dad, I got an A on this report. And he said, that's great. What was it about? And she said, abortion. And he said, I wish those had been around when you were born. And I thought, what did my dad just say to me? The man that I thought loved me, the man who... I thought would protect me against everything, just said he wished I wasn't born? I'm telling you all, teenage years are hard. And when you go into it with that, and you don't know Jesus, man. There were a couple of churches that were close to my house, and I walked to them. The Nazarene Church had a woman named Miss Bess. She had to have been in her 80s, and she was a saint because she, her ministry was to, like, the junior high and high school girls, Sunday school class. And she would have us do her house and let us bake cookies and things like that. She was my introduction into what Chris, Christian kindness and love looked like. I got my second um, uh, glimpse of Christian love there, too, because the pastor's son took a liking to me. 
So I would walk home from school, stop by the church. He was a little older than I was. And we would sit and talk. And then we started holding hands. And then he invited me into the choir loft and wanted to do more than hold hands. So I didn't go back to that church anymore. Um, that's just wrong. <laughs> um, and a couple months later, that fall of my freshman year, a friend asked me to spend the weekend with her. Her sister was getting married. She didn't want to go to the wedding by herself. I think she was probably missing her sister, even though her sister wasn't gone yet, and she didn't want to be by herself. So I went. She said, we'll go to the wedding on Saturday. We'll go to church Sunday morning and out to eat after church. Well, after going out to eat after church was enough of an incentive because we didn't do that a whole lot. We didn't have a lot of money in my house. So get up, go to church. And where do all good ninth graders sit in church? Yep, in that back row, <laughs> far back. So that's where we're sitting. And my first Sunday at church, so I get to see everybody's in front of me. And I'm watching as people are coming in. And the door is opened, and it's like this bright light show. The finest man God ever created walked through those doors. And I'm like, that is the man I'm going to marry. I'm in ninth grade. What do I know? But anyhow, that was my thought process. So I'm like, Donna, who's that guy? She said, that's blah, blah, blah. And he's five years older than us. He's already in college. He doesn't date anybody from here. Forget about him. And I'm like, girl, are you blind? He is much too fine to be forgetting about. So, <clears throat> yeah. Not long after that, my mom and dad got divorced. And I had six weeks left in my sophomore year of school. And my mom comes to me and she says, we're going to have to move. I can't afford this house. And I'm like, Mom, I mean, I had just lost my dad and brother because they got divorced and my brother went with my mom. And the only grandma I knew was my dad's mom, so I'd lost her, and now she's asking me to leave my friend group. And I had a friend that said, her family said, she can stay with us until she finishes out the year. And I thought, this is a great plan. So I asked my mom, and she said, nope, we got to keep the family together. And I'm like, Anyhow, we moved across town. Being the new girl at school with six weeks left is scary. It's also a little bit exciting because you're fresh meat. But anyhow, I digress. Um, <laughs> some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, the winter of my junior year, the man I'd seen that first time at church come walking down the hallway in the basement at church and stopped smack dab in front of the door I was teaching at in. My heart stopped. <laughs> and I'm like, breathe, just breathe. And he says, would you like to go to Blossom Music Center with me and see Chicago? And when I could finally breathe again, I said, yes. <laughs> by October, we were talking about getting married. And by March, or in March, he proposed. And then the nightmares started because when I went to my mom in like a year before this, I had said, mom, I think I'm pregnant and I don't know who the father is. 
I don't know if this baby's going to have my skin tone or be a darker baby. And I don't know what to do. And she said, let me get back to you. Well, when she came back a couple days later, she said, well, I couldn't find a home for unwed mothers, so I think you need to get an abortion. I was 16 years old. I was still trying to get my daddy to love me, still trying to feel valuable. And this sounded like a really easy solution. Nobody would ever know. Let me just tell you, that's a lie straight from hell. It is not an easy solution, and it's something you never forget. Can God forgive? Yes, absolutely. And he has forgiven me, but sometimes the consequences for our sin follow us. Um, but the this um, man that I had been, well, I wouldn't say I was stalking him, but when I've told the story to other people, they've kind of said, you kind of were. But he approached me and asked me if I'd buy a candle to support the Akron University baseball team. Now, mind you, this is in the last century when the tall candles with like the crackly glass around the picture, they are not very pretty, but I bought two. Didn't have a job, didn't have any money in savings, but I figured that if I bought a candle, he'd have to come back and talk to me at least one more time. <laughs> so I bought these candles and... Um, Yeah, it's just crazy. Maybe it's because I bought the candles that he came and asked me out on a date. I'm not sure. I never put that together before just now. What do you think? <laughs> probably not. It was probably the miniskirt I was wearing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Nightmare started after I had accepted his ring because I was really afraid that one of those guys I had dated would come and confront me and tell him. And nobody at church, nobody in my life, um, knew what my life was outside of Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and teaching on Sunday morning. I mean, I had a really, I looked really good on the outside, but the inside was broken. And I knew that I had to have a conversation with my fiance, and I said, you know, told him about my past, told him about the abortion, and when he said, well, who have you been with? I, he wanted a list. So I listed as many of the boys as I could remember. And he took my ring, his ring, and he said, I need some time to think and pray. And he left. And I thought, it's over. There is nobody, or there is no way that somebody as good as he is is ever going to want to have anything to do with somebody as dirty as I am. Not now that he knows the truth. A couple nights later, he came back to the house, and I thought, well, at least he had the decency to come and talk to me face-to-face -to -face instead of calling me. And he took my hands, and he said, I love you, and I want to marry you, and we're going to leave the past in the past. And it was the first time in my life. I'd listened to three or four years' worth of sermons, but it was the first time in my life that I had an inkling of what God's love was. Um, we got married, and in three years, we had a baby, and that was the first time that I felt 
like God forgave me because my first baby was actually two babies. We found out the night before that they were born that we were going to have twins. And I thought, and this is bad theology because God doesn't work this way. But I thought he gave me two babies because he's forgiven me for the first baby. Bill, not long after this, got involved with the men's discipleship group. And this good man that I had married started to change. And it was for nothing but the better. He was chasing hard after God. And I wanted what he had. So I said, Bill, would you teach me what you're learning? And he said, no. I'm just a little bit independent. And I don't take no well sometimes. Don't ask my kids because they'll tell you. Um, and I thought, what do you mean no? Now, looking back, I don't know if he felt like he wasn't qualified or if he didn't have the time because he was working 80 hours a week or more. But I copped a little bit of an attitude. And I didn't say that loud, but I yelled it in my head. Fine, I don't need you because I've got the Holy Spirit, and he can teach me anything I need to know. And that's when my relationship with Jesus began to grow, and it became mine. Because before this, I had put my father and my husband in the position that only God should be in. They were the ones I looked to for comfort, for provision, for protection, to meet all of my needs, and there is no man on this earth, I don't care how good he is, that can do all that. Those daily encounters with Jesus are what healed all the hurts in my life. Those encounters with Jesus are what let me forgive my dad before he ever asked to be forgiven. Those encounters with Jesus are what give me strength and hope and courage. Those encounters with Jesus are what made me be able to tell Satan to go back to H-E double hockey sticks. We have some kids in the audience, so I can't say that word. Um, when I miscarried our last baby and the devil tried to tell me that it's because I allowed somebody to kill my first baby. Our God doesn't work like that. It is the same those encounters with Jesus are what gave me the strength to sit in a chair outside of my husband's hospital room on August 29th, 2014, when the doctor came out of the room and said, I'm sorry, we weren't able to save his life. Was my world shaken? Yes. But I had a peace that cannot be explained because my foundation was founded on Jesus, not on people, not on situations, on Jesus. And the only way you get there is if you have encounters with him. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. He longs to have an intimate relationship with you. And I, I could wish one thing for everybody in this room. It would be that you would have that kind of a relationship with him. Because he will never leave you. He will never fail you. Does he do things that we don't understand? Yes, but he sees a picture way down the road. Would it have been a good thing for my husband to teach me what he was learning? Yes. But would I have had the faith I have today if he had done that? No. Because I would have continued to depend on him instead of God. Whew, sorry. 
Um, what is the common denominator in the four people I've talked about this morning? Their encounter with Jesus. It gave a Samaritan woman who had no social standing the ability to be a social influencer. It gave Paul, a man who was a good man, who loved the Lord, who knew scripture, who memorized scripture. None of that was any good to him until he met Jesus. You don't have to believe me. I'll tell you from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. This is what Paul had to say about his goodness. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church. I lost a page. Uh, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung. That's crap for those of you who don't know what dung means. So that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. That's it, I guess. Um, and if that Samaritan woman was standing here with me, I was here today, I would ask her if we could sing a duet, and I'd let her do all the singing because you don't want to hear me sing. But this is the song that we would sing. Are you past the point of weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Because the shame's done all it's stealing? Are you desperate for some healing? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes the way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Um, his love is strong and his grace is free. And the good news is I know that he can do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus who can wipe away the tears from broken dreams and wasted years and tell the past to disappear. Let me tell you about my Jesus. And all those wrong turns you would undo, who can work it all out for your good. Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. He rises up from an empty grave. There ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free. And the good news is I know that he can do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Who would take my cross to Calvary, pay the price for all my guilty? Who would care that much about me? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner that he can't save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. If you don't know him, let me tell you about my Jesus. Because encounters with him change your life. Your gender cannot keep you from him. Your mistakes cannot keep you from him. Your doubts cannot keep you from him. His kindness leads us to repentance. 
He desires to have an intimate relationship with you. Let me tell you about my Jesus. I don't know who you identify with in those stories today, but I think all of us fit somewhere. Either we've had that past where we think we're, we're pretty good people, we haven't cussed yet today, or whatever it is, or, or like I used to be and feel like crawling into a worm's belly would be hard because I was so under it. Jesus makes a difference in your life regardless of where you fit in that. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds, which is going to probably feel like a long time, and then I'm going to pray us out. Just think about where you are with him. Father, thank you for loving us and thank you that there's nothing in this world that can keep us from you. Thank you for the hope that you put into our lives. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for restoration. Thank you for purpose. Thank you for taking anybody who's willing to come to you and making them a new creation. Father, I pray that if there's somebody here this morning who does not have a relationship with you, that that will change. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of joining you in ministry. Thank you for mothers. Thank you for fathers. Thank you for adults who pour into us and show us what you're like. And if we as adults are not those people, I pray that you will turn us into those people. Thank you for the power that you have to um, just change life. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name.